if I had to pick one episode in my career, though, it, it probably would be in the summer of 99, the battalion I commanded, which was 2nd Battalion of the 505th Parachute Infantry, a battalion of the 82nd Airborne, was the lead U.S. unit into Kosovo. An excerpt from today's guest, a career Army officer whose military service included combat tours in Grenada, Somalia, Kosovo, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Colonel Richard Hooker is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. Welcome back. Today's guest's military service also included tours in the offices of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of the Army, and the Chief of Staff of the Army. A veteran of three tours with the National Security Council, he previously served as an assistant professor at West Point, as the Army Chair at the National War College, and as the Dean of the NATO Defense College in Rome. His book is called The Good Captain, a personal memoir of America at War. And Colonel Richard Hooker joins us now. Colonel Hooker, welcome to the show. Good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you. Great to have you, sir. And uh, the title of your book intrigued me. Why isn't it the good colonel instead of the good captain? Well, the title is based on an event or an episode that happened when I was a young company commander back in the mid-1980s. I was commanding Charlie 509, which was at that time the only airborne pathfinder company in the Army. We had just finished uh, a challenging field problem. We had uh, conducted a night drop, road marched about 18, not I think, and ended up in the middle of an Alabama swamp. And the final part of the exercise was an escape and evasion course. Uh, And a young soldier was complaining to a young NCO in the swamp. Uh, I should note it was July in Southern Alabama. So it's pretty hot. Yeah. Uh, And and I'll paraphrase the soldier who said, uh, I, I just hate this company. I hate I hate the CO. I hate everything about this. And the young sergeant very earnestly said, you know, the captain, he's a good captain and he's just trying to train you for uh, for war. So you need to uh, shut up and and move out. And uh, in a long career with with my fair share of accolades, I think that might have been the most memorable uh, for me, the most meaningful accolade, uh, sort of an unsolicited uh, you know, from from one of your sergeants, I think is as good as it gets. So I selected that as the title, and I, I thought it was a good one. I, I agree. Excellent story. Good, good uh, the good captain. And thinking about that over your 30-year career in the military, um, you joined in um, the post-Vietnam era, 1975, where our veterans were coming back and the uh, the country was pretty sick of war. What compelled you at that time in 1975 to enlist? Well, I was an Army brat, but but actually, uh, when I was a senior in high school, I had not contemplated a military career. My father served three tours in Vietnam as an infantry officer, uh, and that was a a tough experience, as as you'll appreciate, uh, on the family and on Army kids. But uh, uh, coming out of high school... The GI Bill offered a, an opportunity or a way for me to pay for college, uh, perhaps a little bit of adventure uh, and discipline thrown in. Uh, 
and and without too much more thought than that, I just sort of embarked on what I thought would be a, a short three-year enlistment to be followed by a college and then getting on with life. Somehow that turned into a 32-year career and the rest is sort of history, as I think happens to to many young soldiers. Yeah, they, they get in and, and they find that that's the life for them. And uh, That's right. I, uh, I can imagine. In your 30-year service, um, I was in college at the time, but uh, there was conflict called uh, Grenada, and uh, mm-hmm. I saw that in your in your background. And I wanted to uh, ask you about that uh, operation. Uh, I believe it was called Operation Urgent Fury that you were involved with. Right, right. Um, well, it, it it really was in many ways the first major military operation that we had tried to carry out since the end of. Of, uh, of the Vietnam conflict, Grenada um, in the end uh, included something like six army battalions, uh, a big marine battalion, two ranger battalions, uh, and then of course some naval units and, and air force units and so on. So it was uh, it was of considerable size. I think the good point of the operation was that it was mounted very very quickly, and we managed to get a, a lot of uh, forces down there. In, in a real hurry, in a real hurry. Uh, but I, I think the uh, just the impact and the influence of, of, of not having been in, in a conflict in a number of years uh, began to, to play out pretty quickly because we mounted the operation so rapidly. There was not a lot of time to coordinate or integrate. Our intelligence was not very good. Our ability to communicate across services was not good. And we ended up losing a lot of soldiers uh, killed and wounded due to friendly fire, which is an indicator really of a, of a low state of training. So it, ultimately the operation was successful. We rescued uh, hundreds of, of US citizens, medical students from a, a really kind of a dangerous regime. You know, the impulse or the impetus for Grenada was uh, the, the murder of some 50 Grenadian civil servants and civilians and leaders, including the leader of the country. Uh, but you can't you can't feel too good about the way that it was carried out. And I think in retrospect, it was a great learning opportunity. We identified a lot of lessons and we made some improvements that you could see, for example, uh, six or seven years later with the invasion of Panama, which was even more complicated, mm. but really carried off uh, in, a, in a much better way. It's um, Grenada's in the public uh, consciousness is all but forgotten. What uh, you just mentioned that there were murders of some uh, civil servants, but yeah, what in your view pushed it past the point of not being a special operation but boots on the ground? Why do you think so many troops went down? Well, I, I think there was some context. So the, the regime in, in Grenada was a socialist uh, regime that had aligned itself with, with uh, the Soviet Union. But then the, the Revolutionary Military Council, which took over in a coup and assassinated or murdered Maurice Bishop and a number of, of others, uh, really presented itself as a, a, a dangerous, a dangerous uh, regime. It had threatened to uh, uh, seize and hold American students to forestall an invasion. There was, I think, uh, 
an idea that we did not want to allow the Soviets to establish a strong military base in the Caribbean. We know they were completing a large military airfield, the Point Salinas airfield. The decision to, to invade was actually made before the bombing of the Marine barracks previously, but I really think this all came together in, in President Reagan's mind and, and in the mind of his closest advisors that it was really time to take some firm, decisive action. Uh, of course, all of this was was far above our pay grade. We were young officers trying to put this all together on the fly. Uh, but looking back, uh, uh, democracy was restored to the island. Grenada is flourishing and prosperous today. And mm. and I have no regrets about the operation. I I, I think it was uh, it was a good decision. Uh, I wish the execution had been a little better. Mm. And uh, a follow-up on, uh, well, actually, my next question. You served post-Vietnam through the Gulf War. During that time, did you see changes in the way uh, this country approached war in tactics and political maneuverings behind the scenes? I think the answer has to be yes. I think the, the Army and the military went to war in 1990 in the Gulf was arguably the best we have ever had. It was a big army and a big military. We had not downsized uh, really uh, following the end of the Cold War. So we still had some 18 divisions. Uh, it was a it was a, what we call the CTC army. So at that time, all units rotated through the combat training centers, which were very challenging and it just uh, excellent, excellent training. We were able to operate at the big unit level very, very well. So I think the military that went to the Gulf in 1990 was among the best that we've ever, ever had. Mm. And then it was complemented by uh, a leadership team that I think was first class. So President Bush Sr., Bush, perhaps the best qualified commander in chief, cer certainly in 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 the 20th century um and and maybe among the the, the most qualified ever mm -hmm. uh vice president for eight years former director of central intelligence ambassador to china and a combat veteran from world war ii as a navy pilot right yeah his national security advisor brent scope really historians see him as perhaps the gold standard in that position uh general powell maybe the most tower soldier statesman that we've had since Marshall. So it was a, an excellent uh, team that understood what they were about. And I think the recipe or the blueprint before uh, was absolutely right. So so a, a clearly defined, simple mission that everyone could get behind, objectives, uh, strong congressional support, strong support from allies, a big coalition, and then we went in in overwhelming force. So the ground force, some half a million soldiers, the total force approaching one million, mm. uh, really just to eject the Iraqi army from Kuwait. So a big contrast from when we went back to Iraq in 2003 in many, many ways. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I don't think either Democratic or Republican administrations have taken those lessons to heart. So if you analyze or critique the Iraq and the Afghanistan campaigns, I think what you find is the same errors that we made in the Vietnam conflict, much, much to my regret. I hope you're enjoying this episode. You can also watch a video podcast excerpt from this episode on our YouTube channel. Next time, British historian and author Saul David will be here 
to talk about his book, Devil Dogs, King Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, from Guadalcanal to the shores of Japan. This was a brutal conflict in which these young men who were trying to do their best uh, were pitched into an absolute maelstrom of horror and how they got through it. Uh, and one of the key ways they got through it, which is apropos of the term devil dogs and really the reason I followed just a single company is because of this fellow brotherhood, this unit brotherhood that they felt that allowed them to get through it. Sledge is really interesting about this. He talks about the love they had for each other, which was as strong as it would be if it was your own family. And it was that sort of togetherness that got them through it. That's next time. I've just released a brand new documentary. You can watch online for free on Tubi, the streaming service from Fox. The show is called Weather and Warfare, Millennia to Modern Time. Weather and Warfare dramatically retraces the meteorological forces during battlefield engagements that doomed or saved civilizations. In 1588, more than half of the Spanish Armada on its way around northern Britain was destroyed by storms in retreat back to Spain. Napoleon's attack on Russia was stopped cold by winter weather, as was Hitler's siege of Leningrad. Just click on the link in this episode's description to watch on the web or download the app or watch on Roku for free. I hope you check it out. I know you've been out of the military proper, military proper, since 2010. How would you assess, if you can, today's military compared to yeah. early, the early 90s? Well, well, I have some concerns. Uh, one of them is that although we've got a very robust military budget, uh, m- much of it is absorbed either A, by personnel costs, which have ballooned really since 9-11, and then B, uh, in- into very high-priced, high-ticket acquisition programs, you know, fighter planes, warships, uh, high-technology systems, which are far, far more expensive per unit cost than, than used to be the case. So we've gone to sort of fewer and fewer, more exquisite systems, more difficult and expensive to maintain and operate. And that that's a real concern that I have. Mm. If you look at the growth in headquarters and overhead, it's it's really been phenomenal. I, I was surprised to learn doing some research for a paper just last year that that we have one commissioned officer for every six enlisted soldiers in the army that that really surprised me that's that's a lot of overhead it accounts for a lot of our personnel costs and at the same time we don't really have a, a a very big army for example the ukrainian army although in terms of end strength is far smaller than the u.s army actually has more more brigades than the u.s army does today mm. i'm not sure that bodes well if we find ourselves in any kind of high intensity or sustained conflict you know, in the near term, I think slimming back down to where we were before 9-11 uh, and perhaps increasing the ground force by a couple of divisions would, would be a, a very healthy move. And and I think we need to move to, to cheaper, uh, more uh, hardier uh, items of equipment than the direction we seem to be heading in right now. That's a personal opinion. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's because... Um there's a desire to not have so many boots on the ground and fight wars from a distance, like with drone strikes and things like that? Yeah. I think that that definitely feeds into it. Um, The the problem there is you can strike targets with technology, 
you you really can't own the ground hmm. with technology. You you just can't. And one of the major problems we experienced in Iraq, where I served, but also in Afghanistan, just didn't have enough to do the job properly. We we really had a, a real presence in four of Iraq's 18 provinces. And even there, we felt very, very stretched. One of the reasons behind the, the surge. Mm. Even though we grew the Army and the Marine Corps some, we never really were able to achieve the numbers that you would need to through the ground and create the conditions for the political changes that needed to happen, which I never did. So uh, I would make that distinction. There's a difference between uh, a targeting and seizing and securing and owning the ground. And for that, you, you still need boots on the ground. And, and I think that's a- almost timeless. Thinking about your service, I guess this goes back to the incident where um, the moniker, the good captain came about. Is there a memory in your, in your field service uh, commanding paratroops that stays with you? Uh, there are almost, you know, too many to recount. I'm sure. If I if I had to pick one episode in my career, though, it, it probably would be in the summer of 99, the battalion I commanded, which was 2nd Battalion of the 505th Parachute Infantry, a battalion of the 82nd Airborne, was the lead U.S. unit into Kosovo. Hmm. And, and uh, because of the nature of the mission, we found ourselves spread all over a, a very large area of responsibility, and, and we literally had sergeants and young lieutenants being made responsible for towns and villages uh, far from any kind of external support. In some cases, we had elements as small as four soldiers, four paratroopers, a fire team would be guarding an apartment complex and no help, you know, for 20 minutes or so from a quick reaction force. And I was just so impressed uh, and so grateful to be able to serve with soldiers of that caliber, of that kind of dedication, their ingenuity and their ability to innovate and to solve problems was was really remarkable. Uh, and among many, many episodes, that's one of the ones I'm the, the most proud of. Can't take a lot of credit for that. That's the American soldier on the ground, right. figuring things out and getting the job done. But it was very, uh, very rewarding and memorable for, for me personally. So I'd probably I'll probably choose that deployment. Mm-hmm. And thinking about uh, the flip side of that, and my final question, you transitioned to the Pentagon, became a senior advisor, and then served in four administrations. So you saw war from the Washington D.C. perspective. Did that? Did anything in your service in Washington surprise you? Well, actually, those assignments were interspersed. I, I didn't, I didn't uh, get to the White House at the very end of the career. My first White House tour actually was as a senior captain coming out of graduate school. Oh. Uh, and then I, then I went back for a second tour right after Brigade Command. In between all of that, I served, I think, something like five years in the Pentagon, uh, the Army Chief and, and for the Chairman. So I, I really alternated between assignments and and those kind of more high level assignments uh what what i saw i think was uh a, a problematic state of affairs it's i i attended something like a hundred sessions of the deputies committee so these are the number twos 
in agencies and department. Uh, typically, the chairman would be would be representing the uniformed military, and it, it's it's uh, you, you have to always bear in mind that the civilian decision makers who are represented at the very top really don't have much of an understanding of the military, what it can and can't do, how it can be used, and the kind of guidance that needs to operate and be successful. So it, it could be it could be frustrating uh, to to hear civilian leaders say, we need you to go in and problem. And uh, of course the military will say exactly what problem, you know, do you want fixed and the civilian leadership might say, well, we really need to make all this bad stuff go away <laughs> and uh, translating, you know, sometimes vague or aspirational goals into concrete military objectives that the, that the military can wrap its arms around. Uh, you, you can't look back on the campaigns either in Iraq or Afghanistan and, and not be troubled. Uh, and I think there were a couple of basic uh, issues or problems which contributed to those outcomes, which which we also experienced, I feel, in, in Vietnam as well. And the first was that we we made a decision consciously or, or unconsciously to, in a way, tie our success to inefficient and even corrupt regimes, which were themselves uh, in part drivers of the conflict or the insurgency. And in all three of those cases, we convinced ourselves that we could fix the problem and we threw enormous resources and a lot of time at them, but we were unable to, to get there. So, so that's, that's number one. And then number two, we attempted to, to carry on a campaign against an adversary that fought from sanctuary that was supported by outside forces that we couldn't really shut off. And so in all three cases, we experienced lots of battlefield success, very, very few tactical defeats. But in the end, the enemy was able to outlast us and uh, in a way, in a way, claim the victory. I, I can't fault the units in the battle space that were fighting and carrying out operations because I think in, in all three cases, they performed well. Uh, but those fundamental policy miscalculations in the end we were not able to to overcome and we did we did not seem to learn either from from our experiences so so translating that fundamental disconnect into success on the ground was always going to be challenging and then on top of that we had a military and particularly an army that was very 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 overstretched and found itself uh uh, barely, barely able to to man the force, even at the level that 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 we had in those two campaigns. So, uh, a fundamental dis mismatch in a way between our strategic aims on the one hand and the means available and how those means could be used on the other hand. Pretty basic strategic challenges that perhaps we didn't solve in an optimum way. And I, I hope we've learned those lessons and we apply them in the future, but they, they do seem to be recurring, don't they? They do. And uh, hopefully some lessons will take root. The book is called The Good Captain, A Personal Memoir of America at War. Colonel Hooker, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been great. It's a great pleasure. Thank you so much. You bet. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me. 
You can also watch a video podcast excerpt from this episode on our YouTube channel. Next time, British historian and author Saul David will be here to talk about his book, Devil Dogs, King Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, from Guadalcanal to the shores of Japan. This was a brutal conflict in which these young men who were trying to do their best uh, were pitched into an absolute maelstrom of horror and how they got through it. Uh, And one of the key ways they got through it, which is apropos of the term devil dogs and really the reason I followed just a single company is because of this fellow brotherhood, this unit brotherhood that they felt that allowed them to get through it. Sledge is really interesting about this. He talks about the love they had for each other, which was as strong as it would be if it was your own family. And it was that sort of togetherness that got them through it. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. Be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.